Afro Verdict, brought to you by Sputnik Africa. Welcome to Afro Verdict. I'm your host, Victor Anakin, and here is where I'm joined by African experts, youth, and prominent figures to express their opinions on events on the continent and around the globe. In celebration of World Africa Heritage Day, today we are speaking to Dirk Pinar. He is a member of the Tomani Sun, a people indigenous to South Africa, and he works as a tourism and conservation manager at the Tomani Sun Community Property Association. He tells us about his people, their spiritual connection to nature, how westernization affects indigenous African cultures, and the importance of preserving cultural heritage. Mr. Dirk Pinar, welcome to Afroverdict. It's a pleasure to have you with me today. Please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Good afternoon, listeners. My name is Dirk Pinar, and I'm from the Kalahari part of the Kamani Sen community, which is the Sen or the Bushman community that is located within South Africa. I am currently working for my own community, at the community organization called the Kamani Sen CBA, and I'm the tourism and the conservation manager for the community organization and projects. Awesome. No, that sounds great. Tell us a bit more about your organization and the Tomani Sun people. What are they all about? The organization was developed through the land claim, which we started early in the 1930s. So the first land claim for the community, which is part of the sand that was dispossessed from the original hunting grounds that stayed as far back as, uh, as the development in South Africa, all the way from Agumgubwe. The community, most of the descendants moved in between, moved to Eastern Cape, Cape Town, came all the way to the Kalahari where most of uh, the elderly lived in harmony for quite a long time. But with the development of the national park in the area, most of the community elders were kicked out of the park. This include our grandfathers and grandmothers and our parents were, my father was a child at the time. And we were relocating either to nearby farms or across the Northern Cape within South Africa. So the elders grouped themselves together and they started a land claim in 1931 with the then uh, government of South Africa, but it was dismissed as not an Aboriginal land claim. And it continued for years until we as youngsters got involved in the land claim process. And it was finally finalized in 1999. And the organization, which is the Comanis and CPA, through the land claim process of South Africa, all claimant communities needed to organize themselves within a structure that was understandable for the government processes which takes which are formed in a democratic way according to the government system and that's how the organization started as the governing body of the properties that was awarded to the community as well fascinating so there's a term that came up right a cultural landscape can you tell us more about that please the reason why it's a cultural landscape and inscribed as a cultural landscape landscape through UNESCO is because this is a very unique World Heritage Site because it's completely different from any other World Heritage Site. The first example is that this World Heritage Site doesn't have real physical attributes, which is usually 
needed for inscription like in architecture or specific historical physical elements like buildings or vehicle pieces or anything that has a physical evidence this is more based on the ethnobotanical knowledge of us as sand as well as our way of life style which is which in the past was completely nomadic and part of that nomadicness was a sense of leaving no trace the only trace that you leave was your footsteps and that is still eminent within the Khalkhari Transfrontier because there's no physical buildings that was erected. Everything was temporary and it was natural material use. And even if you left it, that over a very short period of time, it will deteriorate because everything was natural material. But the knowledge, the oral knowledge from the elderly and that is now instilled in the transfer of this knowledge, continued the knowledge for future generations by continuously telling these real life stories around campfires and pinpointing with a different method what we consider physical attributes, for instance, gravesites. Sand gravesites is completely different from your normal gravesite or inverted commas, a Western type of gravesite where you have a tombstone. So there's no sign. The way of distinguish and marking it is not with something physical as per se but very close to something physical of nature like a tree or a dune so it will be like seven steps down the fifth dune from the northeastern side from a specific tree that looks completely different from other trees and that that's why it's called the cultural landscape because it includes the way of the culture that's embedded within the natural attributes that we find in nature. So it's not any man-made physical attributes. The only man connotation towards it is the culture itself and the way of living within the natural environment. I hope it makes sense. No, no, it does. Absolutely. So it's technically more about the people and the harmony they have with nature. So you said that the younger generation started engaging in the whole land claim story. Why do you think that you guys were successful in claiming this territory as a cultural heritage site? What made that possible? Yes, it was actually real hard work and very emotional work and very frustrating work in the sense that we in the whole world are one of the smallest communities that exist. We have grown since the land claim and with living semi-traditional at the moment. And how many people are there in the community at the moment? The entire number is 1,096 Komanisen, but not all of the Komanisen currently stays within the Kalahari. So within the Kalahari, in the Kalahari, is approximately about 600 Komanisen. So it's a significant small number. And that kind of influenced the land claim process in South Africa quite a lot because the scale in South Africa or the government method works on scales of numbers in terms of the land claims. So it became quite difficult for the community to claim the portion of land which the community wanted. And that was the entire Halakhali Transfrontier Park the South African side, which was then called the Kalahari Hemsburg Park. And the only way to prove that was the 
enormous research that was done by international researchers and groundbreaking research that was done by the University of Pretoria, which was kept under wraps during the apartheid regime, because that kind of proved the significance of Magum Gupswear. But what it further proved and validated our land claim was that the research was done with elders from our community and the oral history of how civilization in South Africa started, and that kind of overthrown the idea of the whole Janfin Ribic uh, influx into South Africa, and the civilization started in Cape Town, and hence why Makum Gupwe World Heritage Site became the first cultural World Heritage Site in South Africa. And it pinpointed that the first people that was found by the influx of the Rhodesians that set up civilization there was the Bushman or the Komani San, as we are called today. And that attributes to some of the proofs that we need to unpack during the land claim process, because this included elderly needing to show and dig out some artifacts that was buried by their grandparents and that was continued with knowledge through oral transfer to stories around the fire. But it was the only way to prove and validate that we were Bushmen because we were incorporated as coloreds in South Africa. And that was a very painful process because only 10 people in the community at that stage could speak the language fluently because the language was completely suppressed by the farmers within the area, which include both the Africana farmers as well as the English farmers that set foot within the Kalahari. So then the number of two speakers increased, right? compared to back then? It increased in the sense that more community members use sentences and words, but because it's the slowest developed language, because it was never formally written, and because of the spread of Komani, so the focus throughout the years before we formalized the language was using the elderly ladies to teach the children from preschool level or the baby care levels because we thought that was the easiest way to revive the language. And the program is still ongoing. And to be honest, the first formal dictionary was released last year, September, which uh, you can, which I can provide a link for, because it was a huge, huge success for us as a community to get that done. But it was a lot of hard work with a lot of linguists and a lot of researchers to make it possible. That's so the numbers for yeah. speaking is still very, very low in the community currently. The one language is influenced by Nama, and we call it Namahua because it's not clear Kuhua. So it's some of the clans that moved more to the Nama side, the Namibian side. So it, it formed a completely different dialect of the new language, and this is part of the dictionary, and it's called Namahua. And most new speakers today kind of mixed the new language with Afrikaans as well as Nama. And that's why it was important to form or uh, to develop the, the new dictionary, but we incorporated all the other languages that influenced the new language so that with formal teachings, as it grow, that it can be understood 
and the original language can better revive with knowing that what is the correct word and why the Afrikaans version or the Namahua version is used. I'm glad that there are efforts made to preserve your language. Can you perhaps say a couple of sentences or phrases in Ku so that our listeners can hear what it sounds like? Because as far as I can remember, it is one of the older languages in the world, correct? Yes, it mostly consists of clicking sounds, and that's why it was difficult to formalize it. So if you greet in new language, you got two versions. In the Nama version, you say Tengpas, but for us, in new, it's not clear. So what you basically say is, good morning, how are you? How are you doing? And because it's so fast-spoken, and it's mostly click sounds, we tend to speak Afrikaans quite fast. And that's the tendency of our tongues with the new that influence the speed of speaking a language. But you're a clear new speaker or your fluent new speaker, you will only hear clicking sounds and not words different from the other indigenous languages. And that's why in the past, researchers or early travelers refer to the language as a tongue-clicking language. Yes, that is quite different. And what misperceptions do people have about your community and your culture, perhaps, in general? There's a lot of misperceptions. The biggest misperception that was written down in history, which I, as a Kumani or some child, had to read and study in history, was that we believed in the rainbow mantis. Completely wrong. We don't have a belief system of believing in a specific animal or nature structure. It's how our spirituality is connected with nature. So if you see us kneeling in front of a rainbow mantis, we're not praying to the rainbow mantis. We are saying thank you to the rainbow mantis because it's a sign that rain is on the way. And the rainbow mantis by appearing because it's the it brings the message of rain that's on the way. So the early traveler or the researcher captured it because they couldn't understand the language and they just could get a picture of a bushman kneeling in front of rainbow mantis. So we've never believed in the rainbow mantis. We have a spirituality that's connected with nature and finding signs and appreciation through nature and living together with nature. That's how we find the signs and how we communicate with our power or our higher power. No, I understand completely what you're getting at. It's uh, more of a show and tell than read and remember. And tell us, what is the meaning of cultural heritage to you personally? Cultural heritage encompasses everything that we believe in and believing in who we are, how we want our children to carry it in the future and preserving this for ourselves is critically important, especially because we're living in a changing environment. And to be part of world economy, we need to learn things and skills that's not necessarily part of our own skill set. And by changing skill sets and learning new formations of doing things poses a huge threat to your own cultural heritage and preservation thereof. Look, in our pilot episode, we spoke with Hugh Masekela about preserving traditional African culture. And he told us that South Africa is experiencing the negative influence of westernization of South African traditional cultures. So in your view, what dangers does this trend of westernizing indigenous culture 
have in relation to indigenous cultures and traditions in Africa? The biggest danger it actually possesses, especially with uh, industrializing things and needing to make an income on a bigger scale about it, is the use of tools. Because if you look into the artifacts, especially in terms of indigenous communities and how they traveled and lived through the landscape, was how the the tools and making of utensils kept on changing with different influences. And a huge example from us is our craft-making process because we've incorporated the craft-making process as one of the products that can be used by the community in the tourism and conservation industry to create an income. So that's very eminent. But it's also got to do with how we perceive what has been a critical element of our culture, which is the transfer of knowledge through oral history. Because the more we developed in a fast pace, the less most families will have transferring knowledge. Because the more educated the community become, the more they will be exposed to different environments, which will not give them ample time to carry on their own oral history and to transfer that knowledge. And most of the elements in different environments is very westernized. The negativity to its death will take the spiritual process of that completely away. For instance, using technology for saving stories, for saving some of the oral history, which is brilliant and which we embrace and which we fully support. But future Komani leaders will completely lose the spiritual effect that we currently still hold with nature because everything will be digitized, either digitized or monopolized in a very Western way. And for those that's not staying very close in this environment, will either be too difficult or too late to learn the spiritual value that's attached to it. Dirk, and staying on the topic of westernization, let's jump even further back into history. Tell us how the European colonial expansion impacted the indigenous people of South Africa, using the example of the Komani Sun. One of the main events that happened in the Kalahari during the 1800s was the invasion of the Germans from the Namibian side as when they started the nama jama Bura War in Namibia and slowly moved into the South African interior via the site from Sand Parks. And it was also just before World War II in terms of the colonial influx that the English kind of caught wind that maybe Germany is going to start a war So the Bushmen kind of became trapped within the whole war planning from the South African side because they were stationed, the English were stationed through Lord Charles Somerset's procedures from Cape Town and the Germans had base in Namibia. So that whole formation, the Bushmen were caught right in between not knowing what was happening and most Bushmen lost their lives. But at a later stage during the Nama German Bura War in the 1800s, the Germans kind of decided to infiltrate South Africa through Namibia and 
started to set base from Namavia moving slowly into the South African interior, specifically with the idea to kill most of the indigenous communities because they at the stage felt that they will easily be able to overtake South Africa with getting rid of the indigenous communities. And at that stage, they hired some of the local trackers or spoorsnayers by capturing them and then working for them. But the Komani specifically had a one individual, which we call Scarpi in our heritage history, that worked for the German soldiers, helping to search for Bushmen, but doing it as a double agent, because he was actually informing the community about the plans of the German and give the community indication which sites to move to without the Germans detecting them. But at a later stage, the Germans realized that and chased after him on horseback, caught up with him, and locally, where we stay is a huge tree named after his meeting or the Germans meeting up with him, where they tied him on the tree and we call it Captain Tree. And this is where they interrogated him. And right across the road that comes from the city of Uppington, the R360, that passed through now and was not developed in the 1800s. Right across that road, we got another heritage tree, which we also call Scarpi's tree. And this is where the German soldiers shot him execution style because of him being a double agent. So yes, most of the genocide that outnumbered the community in the area was because of the German influx from Namibia, as well as through the Nama German Boer War, as well as some skirmishes they had with the English from the Cape Town side, which the, which the English then possessed at that stage. From the Cape Town part, and it's a published memoir from Jan van Riebeck himself. It, at a later stage, became quite frustrating for the Dutch that the Bushmen were not willing to be tamed and became slaves. So he kind of then got the idea of hunting Bushmen. And because of that idea and philosophy of Jan van Riebeck, it became quite a popular uh, sport in the hunting hunting formality at that stage that the ultimate animal to hunt coming from Jan van Riebeck's philosophy to hunt Bushmen was the Bushman the hunter himself or the hunter themselves and he hunted and documented in his memoir all the Bushmen that he would then hunt down for research purposes and capitalized on it by sending all the corpses abroad for research purposes. So that colonial thinking and influx because of the behavior of Bushmen also caused a very, very high decline in Bushmen numbers itself. I remind you that you're listening to Afro Verdict from Sputnik Africa. I'm your host, Victor Anakin, and this is where we keep you up to date on the opinions of African experts, youth, and prominent figures on events that take place on the continent and around the globe. Today, we are in conversation with Dirk Pienaar, a tourism and conservation manager at the Klomani Sun Community Property Association, 
He is also a member of the Kromani-san people, one of the oldest surviving cultures on planet Earth. Dirk explains how his community's approach to nature conservation is different to that of the West and why preserving his culture is important. Dirk, please tell us what differentiates your traditional approach to nature in contrast to the way they handle things in the West. So in terms of walking in nature, in formal conservation, you're not supposed to make animals aware of your presence. But we as sand believe different. Animals need to know. It has to do with respect and it has to do with properly reading the animal behavior from our traditional perspective. So if we sense lions, we won't stalk up to them. Because we are hunters, traditionally, whenever you stalk, you're hunting. So if you show the animal through your movements that you don't po- pose a threat to it, it will not attack. And in your opinion, why is it important to preserve cultural heritage? Yes, COVID was a huge example for the whole world to come to a standstill and realize the importance of this. It wasn't based on only one culture. It was based on all of us. That we needed to understand that the more we impact only negatively on Mother Earth and not giving anything back and not doing it responsibly, even if we use the buzzword sustainably in a way that it can live for future generations, if we don't have a spiritual connection towards that and a deeper understanding, it will be wasteless. We can continue to use the words sustainability, eco-related, wildlife supportive. But if we don't, with heart and soul, respect that in a sense that we can even challenge the strongest wrongdoer in that effect, we won't have anything to preserve. I see. A couple of questions back, you mentioned that you would like to pass on certain values to your children. Give us a brief overview of how you picture the future of the Kromani son. By orally teaching our children that there's other prospects, but how do you approach it respectfully for Mother Nature and for your own integrity? And how do you communicate that to your fellow human beings without being rude or just naysaying or negative about it, but communicating it in a way that everyone understands that stop thinking the earth is around or flat, let's balance it because it's been balancing itself for centuries. And if we can continue to do that, we can preserve all our cultures. We can still remain with what we have because we need to use it, but we just don't need to use so much that we will use it all up too soon. Yeah, I see your point there. My last question for you then in conclusion, why do you think that it is important to educate the African youth about their cultural heritage and promote the preservation of their traditions and values? It is critically important because you can get absorbed so quickly into adopting a only industrialized or organized, formal Western organized type of lifestyle that you're going to start thinking of your own environment as either undeveloped, wasteful because of thinking from the elderies, and try to take yourself away and 
only focus on what you feel works now and should work for the future. That's unbalanced. And it's definitely not going to work for you spiritually. And it's definitely not going to have the right impact on your own preservation as a human being to teach your children because you will lose the skill of teaching your children the correct stuff and you will become one of the greatest destroyers of something as valuable as what we have today. And that's what we should always err on. The importance of where we all come from, the uniqueness of who we all are, but understanding with our diversity that in the end, we are all human beings with different skill sets. That once we contribute, we need to contribute with the same essence of respect, preservation for our future, our children's future, and wanting to live in harmony for longer than we can or for as long as we can if we do it correctly. So if you preserve your own culture as a human being, your way of preservation will be instilled in your children. And what you instilled in your children will definitely transfer to their children and their future children. Thank you. That was Dirk Pienaar, a member of the Tromani Sun community, one of the oldest ethnic groups in the world and oldest cultures in South Africa. He introduced us today to his people's story and told us how his people got caught up between the German and English colonists of the time, leading to many deaths. Dirk also explained that the people and their unique bond with nature is what makes them part of South African cultural heritage. I hope you found today's episode interesting and learned something new. Thank you for listening to Afro Verdict, and you're always welcome to let me know what you think about the topics we discuss. Until next time. Afro Verdict, brought to you by Sputnik Africa.